0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Hosting the show today are Joe Maravchik and me, John Olson. We're discussing the future of protein production today. With the global
1: population at about 8 billion now and expected to rise to 10 billion within the next 30 years, the need to feed everyone with sustainable practices is becoming more
0: important each year. Global protein demand is expected to double by 2050. With global agriculture strives to meet this demand, we must also consider sustainable ways to meet that demand. Today we'll focus on how offshore farming could help.
1: We'll study various forms of fisheries and fisheries management on future public policy this week's shows. But today we're taking a look at how sustainable aquaculture can help
0: to meet the demand for protein. We're joined today by Bill Bean, CEO of Forever Oceans, a company taking a new approach to raising fish in the open ocean. Bill has over 25 years of experience serving as a leader for startups and market-leading enterprises in the ag tech, clean tech, and high tech sectors. Most recently, Bill
1: was the CEO of Signify's Agricultural Lighting Division, and before that, as Signify's strategy officer, he led the reduction of GHG emissions to 100% carbon neutrality, winning recognition from the Dow Jones Sustainability
0: Index and the United Nations. Bill Bean, welcome to this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're pleased to have you to join us today.
2: Great. John, Joe, nice to talk with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I look forward to our conversation.
1: Bill, we know that you have operations throughout the world. Where are you located this morning for our show?
2: Today I'm delighted to say I'm in the United States, in Washington, D.C., where our office is. Typically I'm on a a plane or on a farm somewhere. We have operations um, starting in Hawaii, where my engineers who created this, this great company are. Um, and we have farms um, in Panama, Brazil, and Indonesia, so I'm frequently there if I'm not seeing customers in the United States.
0: Racking up with the frequent flower miles, I see.
2: <laughs> yes, and also <laughs> offsetting them to as much as possible with our own green operations.
0: Gentlemen, let's go ahead and get started. Our audience benefits uh, every week from background information. Uh, and the global protein challenge in aquaculture are no different. I suspect uh, most of our listeners understand uh, most of the meat and seafood they eat comes from farms in the ocean, but I doubt they know exactly how how much of their fish is farmed versus wild-caught, or how the farmed fish they eat is actually raised, or, or where.
2: Great. So so let's start with you know the basics of food. Um, first of all, producing food is a... I'll show you my bias. I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, I think is a very honorable thing to do and a necessary thing because everybody needs to eat. Um, what we see is that the demand for food is significantly growing as our population grows worldwide. You mentioned it yourself. We're uh, growing to 9 to 10 billion by 2050. Um, and food demand is going to increase for that, but also because of world incomes are increasing as well. Um, So as a result, the demand for food is going to increase by 50% over the next 30 years, 50%. The demand for protein will double during that time frame. And since everyone deserves a right to good, healthy food, we have to find a way to produce that. Midwestern farmers and farmers in the United States are some of the best in the world. But if we continue producing more protein in the way that we have to date, which is mainly terrestrial livestock, We simply will not have enough food, and also we will produce too much greenhouse gases. Um, Livestock today produce 15% of the world's greenhouse gases, and um, that needs to change, and there are efforts in that industry to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, which I applaud. But at the same time, more natural, sustainable sources of protein need to come online and um, some of that will be plant-based but i think that seafood itself needs to uh, step to the front and that's what we're working on let me explain Um, seafood itself is uh, up to one eighth less greenhouse gas emitting than beef Um, also it uses far less potable water and land than other forms of livestock Today there's an industry of over 360 billion worth of seafood that's consumed globally um, versus 182 billion for chicken, poultry. Um, and so it's already a large industry. This is all according to the uh, Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. But then you have to ask where the fish are coming from. And basically as of today, and this is a surprise to many people, is that basically it's almost a 55% farmed fish or raised fish Mm. versus 45% wild-caught. Wild-caught is where it all started, but basically over the past 10 to 15 years, aquaculture, which is the raising of fish, has increased very quickly because the wild-caught fish are at a limit. 90% of wild-caught fisheries are either at capacity capacity or are being overcaught, meaning that the resources of fish are being depleted. So as a result, to basically meet this rising demand, more and more fish are being grown by aquaculture. Um, And uh, that's what we'll talk about today.
1: Enlighten John and me and our listeners about the ways fish are being raised in ocean environments and what kinds of fish are being farmed most prominently. If you could, paint us a picture of what the industry looks like on a global scale, if you can.
2: Okay. I'm going to take it in two ways, Joe. First, for the sake of the listeners, I'm going to talk about first the industry structure um, and then the basics of how a farm works so they can envision that. Um, So first, the structure itself. It breaks down really into two types. One is high-volume production, um, and the other is high-value production. High-volume is concentrated primarily in Asia, And this is uh, led by China, Um, and high value is really salmon intensive, which is produced in Norway and other cold-weather countries, cold-water countries. Um, Chile um, is the other predominant producer of salmon, and there are about four other countries, including Canada and the United States, that produce a large amount of salmon, too. But the high volume is typically freshwater species, uh, carp, tilapia, Those are the ones that are produced in ponds and um, lakes or in rivers. Um, Salmon is produced primarily in fjords um, or on the coast. All of them are produced in pens, and that's what we see predominantly in aquaculture today. Um, That's the industry structure. We'll talk more about the technology, I would expect, as we discuss it. But um, in terms of how a farm works... Um, So basically, you have to find the site to be able to grow your fish, and then you have to raise the eggs from um, fish that we call broodstock, Mm. which are basically seen as the parents of the eggs. They spawn the eggs. You grow the eggs um, in a hatchery uh, to make sure that they are the highest quality, Um, and then those become your juvenile fish, which then you release into the pens or the enclosures, where you grow them to adulthood, and then then they are um, harvested and uh, brought to the table through your distribution chain. And that's typically how it goes. And that way it's similar to uh, livestock in the, in the terrestrial world.
0: So that's a great overview, Bill. Uh, can, can you tell us how the typical aquaculture operations function and what kind of fish you raise out there? I mean, how does aquaculture operate today? It's a pretty high-tech industry, I think. Uh, what about the volumes? I mean, can you talk a little bit more about the volumes that are produced? Uh, the harvests can be pretty large, can't they? Uh, Bill, might, yeah, might no. you so also? so the harvests
2: can sorry. be quite large, and they're something that's ongoing all the time. Again, um, if we look at the seafood industry overall, um, 360 uh, 60 billion or over 360 billion is seafood today. 175 billion of that is finfish. Okay. Um, and then over 50% of the, all those numbers are basically um, aquaculture. Um, if I take the example of how it's done and, and apply it using species, let me give it a go. So there are three ways you can grow fish today. One is the traditional net pen approach, which is usually used on the coast, the lakes, or the fjords. Um, and that's the predominant way of growing fish today. So that's the vast majority of it. It's what's been done traditionally in, uh, in the case of salmon in Norway and also in Chile um, and then in China and Southeast Asia for the, uh, the carp and the tilapia. Um, there are two other ways, and I'll differentiate them. So you have your net pens, and then you also have um, a new emerging form called recirculating aquaculture systems, and then another emerging form, which is called offshore. Now, each one of them have their pros and cons, and I'll just contrast them for the benefit of, of the, the listeners and ourselves. So net pens are the ones that you're getting most of your food from right now, um, if you're if you're buying seafood and if it's raised. Um these are the ways that salmon are raised today, if they're not wild-caught. And typically what it means is a set of pens that are in the fjords, um, where they're side-by-side side or they're in clusters, and they're raised for in, in those pens for up to 18 months. Um, benefits are high professionalized production with very efficient feed conversion ratios, Again, a a fish basically is going to be 1.5 to 2 pounds of feed into a fish versus um, cattle being 35 to 50 pounds of feed for a pound of meat out of that cow. Mm. Um, So it's far more efficient. Um, But the challenges are is that the fish are very clustered together. Um, and it's uh, led to a rise in endemic sea lice, in the case of salmon, mm. um, which are basically natural parasites. So it's not anything unnatural, but there's a high prevalence of them. So you have to constantly treat them um, with uh, baths um, and also antibiotics to reduce the parasites and also reduce the risk of, um, of uh, disease. Um, and then also there's a chance of the fish actually escaping from the cages and going into the local population and then having genetic mixing, which is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So for all those reasons, there are environmental issues with um, concerns that the industry itself addresses um, in raising fish in coastal net pens. These are very sophisticated, multi-billion dollar companies using the latest technology in Norway and elsewhere to be able to grow salmon, but there are those issues. Um, The biggest issue for them is that, frankly, there's no more coastline. There are Mm -hmm. no more fjords. So they themselves are having to find new alternatives, which leads us to recirculating aquaculture and also offshore. So recirculating is basically the idea of building giant industrial aquariums um, on land that produce the fish indoors, uh, very similar to what – the concept of greenhouses are. Mm -hmm. Um, So they produce the fish close to market. The challenges they have are high capital expenditure um, as well as a significant use of of local water and discharge of the water. So they have to be cleaning that and a high use of energy. So the the jury's out. There are several um, well-known startups that are exploring this. Um, We'll see what happens with them. Um, the biggest promise that has been talked about in the industry for a long time, and which what we're doing, is offshore aquaculture. And the idea is there is that you raise the fish in their natural environment, which is the ocean. And you raise them um, far offshore, where the, the pens are very large, so very similar to the density that the fish would naturally experience um, when they swim in the wild. And also far above the ocean floor. So you do not have the risk of the nutrients that the fish are creating themselves or consuming um, pollute the local level of the, there's something called the benthic layer, which is basically the bottom of the seafloor, the bottom of the lake, or the bottom of the river, that those nutrients don't float down there and then basically create too much nutrient in the soil, which leads to a depletion of oxygen eventually. So if you can go far offshore, you avoid all that, and you also create a natural environment for the fish to be raised, as they are if they're wild-caught. And that's what my company, Forever Oceans, has created um, and is rapidly building out. Last thing is just the benefits of offshore. We believe and we're experiencing that you can have much larger-scale operations, which leads commercially to a lower cost of production, which leads to good prices, um, more natural conditions for the fish to grow, which leads to better disease control, and also no problems with genetic breakouts from your your, your produced fish going outside, and much better water quality.
0: Uh, Bill, can I ask a couple of quick follow-up questions? Uh, One is you talked about doing this uh, aquaculture as sort of an onshore uh, environment, huge aquariums essentially, big circulating systems and whatnot. There have been some companies even here in in Minnesota in the Twin Cities metro area that started what was called hydroponics. So you're growing vegetables essentially in in an enclosed environment. Uh, No soil, it's just using recirculated water. And then you have if you want to expand it out, you can do what's called aquaponics, which is where you put something like fish in the cycle. So the fish, when they excrete, <laughs> that gets pulled back up into the circulating system and then filtered through the plant roots. The plants pull those nutrients back up, so it's kind of a, a, a closed-circuit uh, system. Uh, so that's a, is that a little different than what you're talking about, or is that similar to what you're talking about as far as an aquaculture goes on, on an on an, a shore yeah, facility
2: that's a great great question john thanks for raising it um those are similar concepts to RAS, but definitely not operating at the same scale sure sure um so i've seen those as well i think they're, they're very clever but i have not seen them done at a large scale that can produce the amount of food that's necessary to satisfy grocery chains and restaurants sure Um, And that's the difference between a hydroponics or an aquaponics and also um, the uh, just pure play RAS systems that are primarily producing salmon today.
0: Okay. And then you talked about the the systems that are in play uh, in the fjords and whatnot, mostly for salmon production. We're talking huge numbers of fish uh, all schooled close together inside those net environments. That to me sounds a lot like what we have on land and terrestrial agriculture, where you're having uh, concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs. Is that essentially it's it's the same kind of concept but done at sea? Is that right?
2: Well, yeah, it's it's a similar similar concept to feedlots. is basically industrialized agriculture. Um, it leads to a lot of efficiencies, and this is um, something that I think with the amount of people that we have you do need to be producing large uh, quantities of of protein in a very economical way, and these are two ways that have been chosen in the past.
1: From the way you've described a typical commercial aquaculture, it sounds like you think there may be some concerns with the way these industries operate. Would you elaborate on the concerns you might have?
2: Well, I don't want to may say others right but also say generally the issues that we face as we produce more food as as agriculturalists we need to find a way in agriculture and i'm specifically focused on aquaculture on a daily basis where we can work with the land or we can work with the water so it's um basically helping those ecosystems stay vibrant for the long term um and be a solution to greenhouse gas emissions rather than a source of it Um, and what we see now in agriculture um, land-wise is that it's become a very intensive producer of um, food and basically monocrops and as a result the monocrop culture has led to a degradation of soil um, and that degradation of soil basically has to uh, have nutrients being replenished um, by fertilizers, and then you have to be able to treat with herbicides and pesticides uh, to be able to keep the crops healthy. Um, and all this is leading to a, frankly, an imbalance, and you're seeing the soil quality um, de- degrade over time. And so there has to be a massive effort that many recognize in in uh, terrestrial. To, to overcome um, and there's a host of issues there and, and I'll, I'll bring it back to, to the sea world in a second right? so some of the issues that that industry faces is that a lot of these things I talked about the nutrients that they're injecting through fertilizers in fact run into the water mm. um, and as a result that goes down the rivers into the deltas, into the sea and we see this in the Gulf of Mexico uh, where you have now oxygen deprivation going on um, where there's not enough oxygen, frankly, because there's too much algae bloom coming from fertilizer. Um, and you can see this worldwide. It's not just not the United States. So this is the problem of basically creating a system focused a lot on output and not enough on conservation. Um, having said that, as a, as a grown-up farm kid, I think ag- agriculturalists are natural conservers of the land. Um, and we need to find a way to be able to support that in livestock and also in um, crop farming. But coming back to the ocean, um, what you have is an issue where um, over the past 20 years, we've had to produce more and more seafood, and as a result, um, there was a focus on production, and the same pattern has played out. Now, what's happened recently over the past 10 years is a growing appreciation for the environmental concerns that need to be addressed that come from um, production of fish in the water. And, and so we'll get into this later, but there are basically environmental bodies um, that will certify if you are doing the right thing in terms of producing fish in an ecologically sound way. Um, And so a lot of the concerns that, you know, basically be highlighted as overfeeding the fish or having defecation come from the fish and having that go to the bottom of a lake or the bottom of a uh, fjord or a river is the primary concern because that leads to oxygen uh, deprivation. Um, The second one is potentially escapes of your fish, um, which is an issue. Um, And then if I look at the wild caught, it's basically industrial catching of the fish by trawlers that lead to the destruction of coral reefs. But we recognize the problems, and what we need to find a way to do now is to produce the fish in a much better way. Offshore is one of the answers, but also in a way that encourages responsible um, farming or capturing of the fish, so the fish themselves have a chance to replenish as, as stocks so the ocean stays vibrant if you'd like we could talk more about the ocean issues overall but i'll, I'll leave it at that
0: uh, yeah I, why don't why don't you cover some of the the challenges with the ocean uh I- issues uh i mean i think yeah. it's good for our listeners to hear
2: these things yeah so um it, the ocean is fundamentally important it's the vast majority of the the surface area of the of the world um it also Contributes sixty percent of the oxygen that we breathe every minute. So it is the oxygen the primary oxygen engine of the world because of the the plankton that are in the ocean basically are doing photosynthesis and emitting oxygen that we all benefit from. At the same time, due to that photosynthesis, they're consuming carbon. So they're one third of the world's carbon sink. Um, And that's not just the ocean that you think of, but it's also the icebergs that um, have phytoplankton inside them, too, that are doing that. Now, what's happening to the ocean is is a big concern. Um, What we see is the ocean itself is warming um, because it's absorbing the heat that is being captured by the greenhouse gases that we we have now. Um, It is acidifying um and it's acidifying due to the things that i've mentioned but also acid rain um and then there are basically starting to be oxygen gaps in parts of the ocean as well along with pollutants coming into the ocean such as microplastics which we know about um, as well as outflow affluence from some cities that are along the, the the world's oceans um saying this it sounds like it's a pretty dire situation right um, there are challenges. There are ways that people are trying to overcome it. So, for instance, there is a now a host of um, nonprofit organizations and, and policy groups that are addressing the microplastics. More work needs to be done. There are the industry bodies that are governing the production of fish through raising them that have environmental standards that you have to meet to be able to be certified as a sustainable company. Um, and then there's also government bodies that are working to protect the coral reefs more. I think that it's also the responsibility of companies that benefit from these to find ways to protect the oceans and the areas that they operate. And we'll talk about that because it's one of the primary purposes of Forever Oceans.
0: Yeah, i got to tell you, Bill, that's uh, deeply concerning to me that 60% of the oxygen that we breathe here on the planet is produced by the phytoplankton in the ocean. And if we kill off the ocean ecology and the phytoplankton dies, we're in trouble.
2: <laughs> so so I, audience... I, I fully agree with you. Look, <laughs> yeah. this is a fundamental, if people want to dive deeper in this, um, and I'd encourage you to have a show on this, the phytoplankton are being stressed. Yeah, There's no doubt about that. And we have to find ways to revitalize the plankton because... Um, if they go, it's going to be a big issue, and you're starting to see signs where the ecological cycle of the ocean is, is showing stress. Yeah, And well, so we need to invest more of it. In fact, one of the things I'd like my company to do, because we talk a little bit about the company, we have over 200,000 hectares of water. That's the size under long-term contracts with the local host governments who have been working with us to develop these these farms. I would like to – that's for Chicago's, by the way, just <laughs> to give the, the listeners a perspective. We use a small portion of that to, to to raise our fish so they have wild, pristine conditions. But what if we had a bigger vision than that? What if we talked about restorative aquaculture, where if we only use a small portion, let's say 5 to 10% of it for commercial activity, but we want 100% of it to be clean – What if we actually worked with the local fishermen and the local governments to put programs in place that kept that water pristine? And what if we actually took a portion of our proceeds and reinvested it in research for phytoplankton or activities to um, boost the population of mangroves or to protect the corals? This is what our vision is at Forever Oceans and what we're creating right now in the three countries that we're operating Panama, Brazil, and Indonesia.
0: For our audience, you're listening to Public Policy this week, and we're your hosts, John Olson and Joe Moravchik. Our guest today is Bill Bean, who serves as CEO of the company Forever Oceans, and we're discussing aquaculture operations. Bill, you lead a company that pursues sustainable fish harvests
1: by raising them in offshore ocean conditions using a different model than other forms of fin fish aquaculture. Could you please describe that business model? How did Forever Oceans get started, and what has been the goal of the company since its inception?
2: Sure. So let me start with our vision again for people who just joined, and then how we got started and what our model is. So our vision is that the world deserves higher quality protein that's natural, and the best place for it is the ocean. So we want to restore the health of the oceans by the fish that we grow and the way that we grow them, and we want to contribute to the improvement of people's health through the products that we grow. Um, That's our vision. So the idea is if we're going to have a healthy ocean, we have a healthy planet, and we're going to have a part of that. Um, How did we get started? So back in 2013-14, um, there were a group of scientists, engineers, and business people at Lockheed Martin that participated in a uh, basically a, a science contest to come up with ideas using advanced technology that Lockheed had to solve world problems. Um, and I have to applaud them for thinking about this. And this team came up. And these are our founders. This team came up with the idea of using that technology remote communications rugged operations to basically farm fish in the wild far offshore in a way that um, would be automated and efficient yet ecologically sound Um, they were funded by lockheed martin in the start um, but they spun out shortly after and incorporated as a company in 2015 um, some in the mainland And then the rest moved to Hawaii because there was a uh, government research program uh, funded by ARPA and also the state of Hawaii that looked at deep ocean aquaculture and deep ocean mariculture, which are the ways to raise fish or other forms of seafood. And so my team of founders, and I joined later, but this is basically what I've learned, is they would design the technology at night. Do a little bit of surfing in the morning uh, and then work all day long, basically building these remote cages and the the telecommunication systems and the robots that were necessary to be able to make it all work. And then they would take it out um, in the ocean and operate and see how it would work. And it was a great example of entrepreneurialism done in the ocean. And it's an amazing concept. And and eventually this led to, in 2019 and 20, raising fish and the automated enclosures that they had built um, successfully, proving that the concept worked. And then we started operations in Panama and secured our concessions in Brazil and Indonesia to be able to expand globally. Um, Our model is to basically run um, today – These farms in a way that's a vertically integrated business so we can ensure the quality of the fish from the egg level where it all starts coming from the the parents that we have. The parental fish called broodstock and then we basically get the eggs from the broodstock natural spawning of them Um, and then we move it directly offshore as juveniles Um, and then the juveniles grow to adults. I mean, it leads to some fun things, right? So we, we basically now have um, large colonies of fish being raised in the open water. So when you get to go out and see them, it's a 50-meter pen, so why not do some laps with the fish out there? <laughs> Done it. Um, and as they grow, they end up being beautiful, beautiful, delicious fish that are full of omega-3s, um, very high sources of protein, Um, And then we harvest them. We then move them into the United States as quickly as possible, which is our primary market now. We will be developing Asia and Europe. Um, And then then we raise them. Um, But underlying that is the technology. So we basically have uh, nine fundamental patents for the technology and and multiple countries, 30 patents for um, what we've developed starting with some core technology that I'll explain now. One is a single-point mooring this is fundamentally different from others. The idea of a single-point mooring is that our our enclosure basically rotates and flows with the current. Keep in mind, this is a big enclosure. It's 50 meters wide. It's basically the depth of six buildings, Mm -hmm. um, and it's 10 miles offshore. And what we're doing now is we're making it mobile and modular. So that basically means we can move this pen that is basically attached to a vessel Anywhere within our concessions, um, which is important to basically keep the ocean healthy, but also to avoid hazards. Hmm. And I've mentioned some of them, but basically the hazards you face when raising fish are algae blooms, um, which will happen. Um, They're made worse by fertilizers and things like that, but these things do happen naturally. So you have to be able to move the fish away from those so you don't get into oxygen issues. Um, and then also, if we can go deeper, farther offshore, we can operate in, in very rich, pristine water. Um, we operate only in tropical waters because we've chosen to raise fish that grow in warm water because they grow faster. But also, with the warming of the world's temperatures, the ocean itself will raise. So we've kind of chosen future-proof fish, if I could say that. Um and then also we start started with one species, um, which is um, Cereola rivoliana, but we will be working to grow other species, such as grouper or barramundi, that we can bring to the market. Again, we're an end-to-end business bringing these delicious fish to market.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the, the fish you raise and why they are so healthy for people to consume? And maybe a little bit about why they're different than the salmon that is raised in coastal pens in the cold waters around, say,
2: Norway and Chile. Okay, um, first of all, salmon's a, a wonderful product. I'll say that right, and it's a, it's the most consumed of uh, seafood in the United States, so it's a great product. Um, the other is tuna. Um, how are we different? Is, is a pertinent question. The fish that we chose are very ecologically sound. Now, like salmon, which has a, it has a great feed conversion ratio, right? So you want to be able to get a feed conversion ratio of two or better. And that means basically for every two pounds of food that a, a fish ingest, you get one pound of meat. All right. Again, by contrast, beef, 35, um, sorry, basically 8 to 10 feed conversion ratio. All right. Even higher for uh, certain parts. So... Um, What we have there is we chose a fish that's ecologically sound. Um, It will grow out to adulthood um, in seven to nine months. Mm. Salmon takes at least 18 months to be able to grow to adulthood. So it's less input, right? So as a result, uh, much better. Um, Our fish have a very high level of omega-3s, similar to wild-caught fish. Um, and they are very rich and fatty, um, not in a negative sense, but basically, when you taste a fish, the thing that gives you the zing, the, the 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 you know just the joy in your taste buds is from ATP, which is a fat, a natural fat, and our fish are rich with this. So um, it's a fish that can be delicious in sushi, sashimi, but also work very well as the center of a plate fish. My second day of the job. Um, actually, on you know, my second day of the second week, I went to New York after I was in Panama to see the farms, and I was in New York City specifically for a cook-off by students at the uh, Culinary Institute of America, who were growing our, basically taking our fish that we had grown on the farm, and, and seeing who could create the best dish out of it. And what I saw is that there were nine different dishes from culinary. Uh, cuisines from all around the world and it worked well in a stew it worked well in gumbo it worked well center of the plate so on and so forth so it's it's a very versatile fish and for that i think it actually rivals salmon um, and tuna now what's interesting when we think about this from a uh, uh, from a commercial aspect is that both salmon and tuna have issues over the long term where salmon is a cold water species um, and with the, wa- the water temperatures increasing, they have production issues. Yeah. Right? There's already been a documented case of a of a fish farm in New Zealand um, having to shut down some of its sites, frankly, because the water became too warm. Mm. Tuna is wild caught, and uh, I go back to that issue that wild caught means that um, basically sixty to ninety percent of the world's fish that are being caught are caught at capacity or caught at over capacity so catching more of them basically means you're destroying more of the ecosystem or you're frankly not going to be able to catch more of them so this creates an opportunity for companies like ours to be able to to raise fish so right now we're raising cereola um basically known as either yellowtail or campachi or amberjack based on what part of the united states you are it's a fish with many names but it's delicious nonetheless um but we are also bringing online grouper and barramundi in the near future
1: Bill Bean is from Forever Oceans. He is our guest this morning on KYMN. Bill, your model seems like a great example of smart, coherent sustainability practices. Could you talk more about where specifically your fish pens are located around the world? Maybe about investments your company is making in enhancing sustainability and partnerships with other companies in this space. We'd be curious to know if you're seeing any impacts to your model from ocean acidification or ocean warming. You did talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Joe, great question. So just for the listeners' benefit, we're raising our compache um, in Panama, um, Brazil, and Indonesia. Um, We have an engineering team in Hawaii that powers all this, um, and that's where we are today. Um, We're not facing issues um, with the temperature warming because, in fact, our fish grow faster when the temperature warms (laughs) um the to to a point right we don't want the world to be a (laughs) three degrees celsius because there'll be nobody to buy the fish (laughs) but the fish do grow um in a uh level where basically the mid-20s celsius is is very good for them um and so we have deliberately looked at what are the type of fish that will do well in warm water And those are the ones that we will grow. We also look at, um, when we're looking at our sites, um, that's the first set of choices. The second one is where we put a farm, we want to be able to raise fish which are naturally local to that region. Um, So we respect the local region's ecosystem rather than producing fish that are foreign to that region and flying them in or producing them or, uh, and then introducing them to the wild. So every one of our fish have to be basically locally caught before the, the fish become broodstock, and the broodstock are basically the parents mm-hmm. that produce the eggs, so everything is local. Um, and then we choose that the fish are grown in what we call the intertropical region, which are basically the, uh, the subtropics. And we choose that because basically the subtropics are the locations where um, there are less hurricanes, less uh, violent dynamic areas that could potentially damage your operations. Um, and that's, that's how we choose things. Now, expanding on that, um, we, as I've said before in the earlier segment, are developing this idea of restorative aquaculture. Where in our concessions, we basically um, endeavor to protect the ocean as well as produce fish. And we do that by working with the local fishing associations to set up guidelines for responsible fishing. But it is our intent to reinforce that by um, basically sharing our resources with local fishermen so they have the ability to process the fish. That's our vision that they catch. Um, while also investing in restorative aquaculture practices such as um, investing in protecting mangroves or replanting them, investing in coral reefs, um, and also um, allowing other companies to, and maybe ourselves to explore the growth of um, other types of seafood that basically take carbon out of the ox- out of the atmosphere. Right? So for example, if you grew mollusk or uh, shellfish, um, that actually consumes GHG or greenhouse gases, or if you grow seaweed, um, that does the same, and these are the type of things that we'll explore over time as we establish our farming operations.
0: Uh, Bill, can I ask a couple of quick follow-up questions on the locations for your fish pens? You'd mentioned uh, earlier, you know, 10 miles offshore. Sure, absolutely, John. Is that that specifically what you're looking for is the 10-mile offshore thing, or are you looking at water depth, ocean currents, making sure you're not in any of the shipping lanes, those kinds of things, are those at all? factor into where you locate the pen
2: hopefully my science team is listening and they can coach me (laughs) on my answer later but this is what i understand from them there's a set of parameters that we look at um when we we select a site first the biological and the ocean conditions and then second the logistical conditions let me start with the primaries so the primaries are temperature oxygen levels salinity um wave and current strength and continuity um and um also the risk of algae blooms hmm. right we put those in that basically identifies the sites um something we haven't talked about is we have to have a good operating condition right right so we're basically building um floating farms um, for wild raised fish Um, deep in the ocean, so we have to be able to operate out there. Now, since we're autonomous and we're basically run by long-distance communications, software, and artificial intelligence, we have cameras in all our cages. We haven't talked about that. And that basically enables us to um, monitor how the fish are growing, feed them in a regulated way so there's not excess feed going into the ocean, but also monitor their health but even then you do need and this means that we send less vessels out to watch the fish or to practice animal husbandry but you do need to send them out there Mm -hmm. so we need good operating conditions um the second center considerations is in the end it is a business so we have to have logistics that enable us to um quickly and effectively without a lot of um greenhouse gas emissions get the fish into the water, get the fish out of the water when they're adults, and then process them so we can then ship them to our markets in the United States now and then later to Europe and Asia. So we have to be uh, near a good port or invest in the building of a port.
0: Does the processing of the fish happen on board the transport vessels or is it all ashore?
2: Um, Right now is it all ashore. Over time, we'll look at what is the most ecologically sound way and efficient way of doing that, and we're open to different options.
0: So for our audience, you're listening to Public Policy this week, and we're your hosts, John Olson and Joe Moravchik. Our guest today is Bill Bean, who serves as CEO of the company Forever Oceans, and we're discussing ocean fisheries management.
1: Bill, let's discuss the future of aquaculture. What are you seeing among global governing bodies with regard to creating standards for better management of the aquaculture industry or the overall commercial-scale fishing industries? What management trends are you and your team at Forever Ocean seeing in the governing bodies or in the industry itself?
2: Um, so it's a great question. I'll, I'll address some of it. Um, as as I've said before, there are basically industry uh, certification bodies Um, And we'll talk a bit about that. And there are also local regulatory authorities as well, um, which do very important work. Let me start with the industry bodies, and then I'll move to the local regulatory. Um, And what uh, I'll start with is that basically there are industry bodies, for example, the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, the Better Aquaculture Practices Group, that have um, standards similar to um, ISO. ISO, something that's Manufacturing Industry Standard Organization, that set up what a good business should be. And um, for ourselves, basically, it is the aquaculture certifications organizations that say what a good aquaculture company should do. And they will audit you at every part of your production from the onshore. How do you care for the fish in a hum- humane way? What type of feeds do you use? Do your feeds have the right level of um, sustainable inputs? Um, How do you raise your fish? So, for example, are you raising the fish in a way that um, does not pollute the local environment, either through defecation or through um, uh, feed outputs? Um, Do you not have the fish escape? Uh, And then on the positive, um, are you raising the fish in a humane way? It also looks at the worker conditions, right? So are you employing your your people in a respectful way that actually contributes to the local economy? Um, And then the processing is also a part of it. Do you process the fish in a way that's ecologically sound with no pollutants? All those things happen. Um, Then basically... You have auditors come in who will audit you um, independently once a year, uh, and then they can drop in at any time of the year to be able to check on it. Um, so we have just started out ourselves. We have our first commercial um, harvest going on as we speak. Hmm. Uh, and I haven't mentioned that, actually. No. <laughs> um, so as we speak, we're, we're selling fish in Los Angeles and Miami, And as part of that, we had to uh, go for our first audit, which we're working with one of those bodies right now, and then the second one will start. And I can tell you it's very extensive, and they are quite demanding, and they should be. Hmm. Um, And so they're out there auditing um, all the companies, and as a consumer, you have a choice, right? Do you buy seafood that has um, either ASC or BAP or Monterey um, Bay Aquarium? Um, stamps on them because they do mean something to ourselves mm-hmm. and other members of the industry. It's something you have to really strive to achieve or do you not? So the consumer has a voice in this. Um, that's one level. And then from a quality and health perspective, uh, I'll speak to the U.S. experience. There's the Food and Drug Administration, um, which basically um, does the job of making sure that um, United States consumers have healthy food that they can they can consume and for ourselves that means that all of our processing plants um, have to be inspected uh, along with our warehouses to assure that there are no hazardous risks that could contaminate the fish and it is our responsibility to have all of them ready for audits and to have our reports available and so we take that very seriously and that's something that we have Um, Finally, in terms of um, aquaculture and fisheries, there's also local national regulations that are fundamentally important and you have to respect as an operator. Um, So these are basically um, regulations that ensure that you're operating with respect to local environmental conditions, um, shipping lanes, um, and also fishermen concerns, um, which we're, we're looking at. Um, and we as a result um, have received concessions in all of our countries because we ascribe to the rules that they put forward and work with the local communities Um, and these are things that are necessary Um, now looking more globally the united nations along with um, all of its uh, signatory countries have been very progressively under sustainability development goal 14 uh, protecting the health of the oceans, um, promoting even more aggressive standards in aquaculture and also fisheries, uh, which we we look forward to following the lead and, and contributing to this.
0: So, Bill, what what new trends are you seeing uh, around the world with this uh, aquaculture industry? Uh, you, you mentioned how really how young your company is, relatively speaking, in a in a business sense. Uh, this breakthrough technology that was developed by Lockheed Martin and then spun off to become your company. Now that the technology is out there, the knowledge is there of how to do this uh, in a deep ocean environment, are you seeing a lot more startups uh, in the industry that mimic what you guys are doing?
2: Well, we'd like to think that we have a large competitive moat that will prevent others from, from doing what we're doing but in fact there is competition i mean you ask a business person a question john you're going to get that answer um but basically there are uh two sects, right so there's warm water um offshore companies and we do have competitors in this space but i'm fairly confident with the technology that we've built that's differentiated in the talent that i've assembled from other aquaculture companies we will quickly surpass their volumes within the next several years um really the largest seafood producers from a farmed perspective a raised perspective are the norwegian and chilean companies and we're talking multi-billion dollar companies i respect what they're doing we're not at their stage yet but give us time Um, we have tremendous capacity to be able to produce more fish um, and that's our intent now One of the trends, we've talked a lot about production, but one of the trends I want to try to address is also consumer habits. Um, This is fundamentally important, right? Consumers drive the world's economy. Um, And more and more consumers are looking for food that is healthy for them um, and also environmentally sound, right? So 25 to 30 percent, by our research, either want food that is good for their health or good for the planet. This is why you're seeing plant-based proteins succeed. Um, This is why you're seeing branded proteins also start to succeed. And this is the trend that we want to take advantage of and connect with our consumers because I think we have a unique story to tell with our restorative aquaculture and the fact that we grow our fish very sustainably and the protein is dense and rich of omega-3s and comparable to anything that they could have, if not better. So it's our intent to really leverage that um, and, and to make this a, a very successful company that then reinvests in um, the oceans where, we're, where we work. Bill,
1: Bean from Forever Oceans is our guest this morning. Bill, what else should people know about the state of global aquaculture today? Anything we have not talked about this morning that we should absolutely discuss?
2: Um, wow, that's a deep question. <laughs> Um, we we try <laughs> we try here. You know, you, I compliment you. <laughs> Look, there's there's some of the big issues are um, outside of what we do um, is microplastics. Hmm. How do we address this issue? Um, and that really gets to consumer um, attitudes and also large companies that uh, use extensive packaging. How can that change? Because that is something that is, you know, now an issue that needs to be addressed um likewise the the outflow of um nutrients from fertilizers and on-land aquaculture um then i would say wild fisheries catching how can that be done in a more responsible way but i would think that um if people want to get access and learn more about this there are several good things to do Uh, one is um Our website, of course, Forever Oceans, shows what we're doing um, and the practices that we're doing that we think are different. So I encourage people to go to www.foreveroceans.com. Sorry for the plug. (laughs) Um, But also there are some good reports done by some um, independent bodies. I highly recommend the Nature Conservancy's Global Principles of Restorative Aquaculture. Um, the food and agriculture organizations publications called Towards a Blue Transformation and the State of World Fisheries and Aquaculture and then finally if you want to go to a good old fashioned book um, (laughs) yeah they're there, they're still in the libraries Um, get the four fish which really um, shows how salmon sea bass, tuna and other and tilapia have been domesticated Tuna has not been domesticated, but the other three have and it explains aquaculture from a very um, very sensible uh, way and puts forward uh, an idea of how it can be done better.
0: Yeah, this show is all about uh, public policy and trying to find you know really good solutions to really complex uh, tough issues. Uh, from our perspective as hosts, you know we're both familiar with the Monterey Bay Aquarium's website. Uh, you mentioned them a little while ago. Uh, they yeah. do a pretty good job of identifying which fish are sustainably caught by the commercial fishing industry, uh, and raised, and raised, yeah, and raised. And uh, maybe you could uh, talk about some of the other reports that are out there as well. Uh, I know we, had, when we were getting ready for the show, you had mentioned some, I think, Nature Conservancy and some uh, some other reports that are out there that people should maybe look at if they want to discover a little bit more about the the right kind of fish or other seafood to uh, to yeah. buy.
2: It's always a good place to start with uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium. I've mentioned the Nature Conservancy again. It's the global principles of restorative aquaculture and also towards a blue revolution. In addition, um, if people want to know about more from a consumer standpoint, there's something called the Seafood Alliance, uh, which has been advocating for the past, for a long while, um, the need for the American population to consume more seafood. Um, And and yes, it does benefit the industry. I'll never deny that. But when you look at demographic trends, Americans eat far less seafood than Europeans and Asian communities. And omega-3 is actually a very good source of healthy protein and fats that benefit the cardiovascular system. um, And research has also said benefits mental health um, and also the development of the nervous system um, and um, and in, in uh, prenatal stages. Um, so what I'd encourage everybody to look at that uh, Seafood Alliance research and really think about what dietary choices they make. You know, Americans, we were at least a half beyond, behind Europeans in our consumption of seafood and far behind Asians. And if we're looking to lead longer, healthier lives, simply eating seafood one or two days a week more than we do now um, is a, fundamentally easy and important step for people to take so i encourage you to look there
1: bill bean thank you for joining us today this has been an incredibly interesting conversation
0: yeah i, I agree thank you bill for uh for joining us uh best of luck to you and your team at uh, forever oceans as you advance this area of sustainable aquaculture into the future uh, what, what do you have uh on, on your travel plans uh going forward for the next couple of weeks uh, are you going to be bouncing around the world again
2: uh, yeah, I'm actually going to be at the farm next week uh, with my team, raising the eggs, raising the fish. Um, after that, I'm going um, to Indonesia to do the same. Um, I hope to be home in the next couple weeks in grocery stores somewhere near you.
1: <laughs> that closes this week's edition of Public Policy This Week.
0: I'm Joel Morafchik. My co-host is John Olson. Folks, please tell your family and friends about this show. Our goal with Public Policy this week is to have meaningful, in-depth, civil conversations about public policy challenges. Challenges we all share together as Minnesotans, as Americans, and as citizens of the world. We want people to be
1: armed with facts and data, to hear from policy experts, and to be able to use information from our show to make decisions about where you stand on highly complex public policy
0: issues. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you'll join our show again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. when our guest will be University of Minnesota Athletic Director Mark Coyle.
1: You can find the recording of today's show on our website, KYMN, KYMN.net. we on your favorite podcast service under Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Thank you and take care.
0: You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from KYMNradio.net.